This is Stephen Becker. I'm a former district court judge and a former state legislator from the state of Kansas. This is Beth White. I have a decade of experience with criminal justice, specifically in the corrections field. And this is Cleared. I feel like celebrating. Woo-hoo. Celebrate, celebrate. We did it, number two. <laughs> no, that's not why oh, I'm celebrating. Yeah, yeah. There's more important things than us, isn't there? There is. I feel like celebrating because today is International Wrongful Conviction Day. Woohoo! Woohoo! Blow the whistles. That was the confetti a, oh i was gonna say was that a whistle or no that was that, that was, was confetti, confetti. Okay. no uh wrongful conviction day has the same mission the same purpose as our podcast and today uh, okay here's a little tidbit you probably don't even know beth mm. about me oh yeah when i was living in topeka attending washburn university uh-huh. i went to a concert downtown topeka Rare Earth. They rock the house. Rare Earth. You, are you familiar no, with them? No, I have no You're idea. Not. <laughs> You're not familiar with them? Okay. They had a hit, a big hit. It goes something like one, two, one, two, three, four. I just want to celebrate another day of living. I just want to celebrate another day of life. Okay, I think I've heard that before. Yeah, cool. That's the way I'm feeling today because we are celebrating three, nearly 3,000 exonerations since 1989 when they started keeping track of these kind of things. 3,000 inmates who were serving a sentence for a crime they did not commit. That's too many. They were innocent. 3,000. We have, well, we have three facilities here in Hutchinson, correctional facilities, all under the Hutchinson Correctional Facility, but there are three separate facilities, maximum security, medium, and minimum security. All combined, all combined, they have a capacity of 1,784. Oh. Yeah, we're talking 3,000. Wow. That kind of puts it in perspective. Wow. Yeah, it does. Yeah, this wrongful conviction day, it's to, for people to understand the scope of this problem, the Midwest Innocence Project, more about about them in a minute, uh, 
but they say that there is currently on the average three exonerations per week. That gives you some sense of how many um, of our prison population are innocent. And that's what I want you all out there to understand, how prevalent this problem is. Um, the prison population in this country is 2.3 million. A recent study that I read suggests that 4% are innocent, which means there are, what, like 92,000 um, mm. innocent people serving time in prison. That's what our podcast is all about. That's what, what we're wrongful conviction day is all about. Among all these exonerations, one item I want to throw in there is 186 exonerations of people that were on death row. They had been sentenced to death and they were innocents innocent with all the safeguards that are imposed in capital cases and we still can't get it right okay wrongful conviction day here's a big shout out to the innocence network that's all the innocence projects across the country uh, that provide pro bono legal services and investigative services uh, to inmates to prove their innocence uh, special shout out to this midwest innocence project uh, they look at case, uh, cases in, I think, five states, but Kansas is certainly one of them. They office in Kansas City, and I've certainly worked with, um, with that office some and have so much respect for them. Okay, one other shout out to uh, the KU Law School Project for Innocence. Um, Beth, you know a little bit about KU. I do. You I spent a good chunk of my 20s there <laughs> and a lot of your money. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Both of those <laughs> things are true. Okay, so the KU Law School Project for Innocence, I had an opportunity just this week to uh, visit with a law student about a case uh, that she was working on. So these, these are the frontline people who their careers are dedicated to wrongful convictions. So... This is their day. Um, I have such gratitude for them. I celebrate all the exonerations, and uh, I'm concerned about those that have not yet been ex exonerated. So, Beth, what have you got? So, something I really didn't think too much about until I started looking more at exonerations. We've talked a lot about the Innocence Project is that those innocence projects only look at cases involving DNA testimony or DNA evidence, not testimony. And they do that for a few reasons. The chief one being is that DNA is black and white. It's pretty easy. They send it off, they test it, and either proves it is the person or not the person. So in honor of National Exoneration Day, I thought I would look at the United States' first DNA exoneration. What'd you find? Well... Getting into it, I'm going to try and keep this very concise. Um, this is a very sad case. There's so much more to it than I initially thought. I thought maybe it'd be something super simple. It is not simple. Maybe it's worthy of an episode. Maybe, but we're going to do it here. 
His name is Gary Dotson. In July of 1977, patrol officers came upon Kathleen Cromwell. She was a 16-year-old fast food worker, and they saw her near the shopping mall where she worked. She was visibly upset, and her clothes were dirty and in disarray. She told officers that she'd been raped. She had been jumped by three young men after work and thrown into their vehicle. According to her description, the police sketch artist later... A clean-shaven, young white man with stringy shoulder-length hair tore her clothes off in the backseat and raped her, afterwards scratching several letters into her bare stomach with a broken beer bottle. Yeah, that's rough. Whoa. Yeah, that's, that's real heavy. Kathleen was taken to the South Suburban Hospital where a rape examination took place that night. Her undergarments were taken which would later misleadingly be labeled as seminal stains in them, as well as several hairs that they found in a vaginal swab were collected. A few days after she created that sketch of that long, stringy-haired white guy, police came to her with several mugshots. She ended up identifying 22-year-old Gary Dotson out of those mugshots. In retrospect, Kathleen says that she felt pressured by law enforcement officers to identify him because of how eerily similar he looked to the drawing that she had helped create. Of course, law enforcement denies that. Upon her identifying him out of those mugshots, Mr. Dotson was arrested the next morning at his home, which he shared with his mom and sister. Mr. Dotson, at the time of his arrest, had a full mustache. That's important. Remember, she said that he was cleanly shaven, the assailant that attacked her. He had a full mustache, one that you can't grow in five days, especially when you're 22 years old. Despite this, Kathleen identified Mr. Dotson in the lineup. This seems like a pretty open and shut case, huh? Yeah, you'd think so. Yeah. There was a problem, though. And the problem was that Kathleen knew this wasn't the person that attacked her. And she knew this wasn't the person that attacked her because she made the whole story up. The entire thing. The crime didn't happen? Nope. Come to find out, the night before the alleged crime took place, she had consensual intercourse with her boyfriend. Keep in mind, she's 16. And apparently she was overwhelmed with fear and anxiety that she was going to be pregnant. So she needed to come up with a story to tell her parents just in case she was pregnant. And that's where she concocted this whole story. So what's the problem? Dawson, nothing became a Dawson. You'd think, but Kathleen kept the secret to herself. She concocted the whole story, created the self-inflicted scratches on her stomach in an effort to make it more convincing. On the off chance she would get pregnant, she would have something convincing to tell her parents so they wouldn't be upset with her. That's a lot, especially for a 16-year-old. I can't imagine what kind of home life she must have had where she felt like that was the better option, opposed to being honest. So she identified him in the lineup, and despite knowing that he wasn't the guy because, in fact, there was no crime that took place, Dotson's trial began in May of 1979. They had two witnesses. Kathleen, who at trial identified Mr. Dotson in the courtroom, stating, there's no mistaking that face. And who do you think the second one was? I don't know. A scientist? Ding, 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 ding. Another serologist. Timothy Dixon, the state forensic scientist. And wouldn't you know, we have problems with his testimony too. 
just like in Mr. Gardner's case. First off, as part of his testimony, he testified that he was a forensic expert and that he had done graduate work at UC Berkeley. You know what later came to be his graduate work that he did? A two-day course, a two-day training course. That's what he constituted as his graduate work. That is some creative resume writing, I tell you what. So the scientist, the expert, air quotes, provided testimony that, you know, the underwear that was collected, there was a stain in it, and he detected type B blood antigens. Now, this gets a little complicated, so bear with me. He went on to conclude that the man whom the stain belonged to had to be a B secretor. Again, this is all before DNA, so we're just looking at blood types. But wouldn't you know it, Mr. Dawson just so happened to be a bee secretor. And based on the evidence provided by Timothy Dixon, he was one of 10% of the population that was a bee secretor. So it was one in 10 that he was it, that Mr. Dawson, one in 10 odds that it was somebody else. The only problem was, again, this expert air quote wasn't being honest. There was bee antigens in the stain, but Kathleen herself was a bee secretor. So the stain could have came from Kathleen. So again, this gets a little complicated. I'm going to dumb it down for my purposes, if not anybody else's. This only eliminated type A and AB secretors, which are one third of the population. So therefore, Mr. Dotson having one in 10 odds that it was him, anybody else, it was now two out of every three males in the United States. That's a little bit different. That's hard to get beyond a reasonable doubt. You'd think. Instead of Mr. Dotson being one of 10, he's now one out of every, or two, excuse me, he's now two out of every three men that could have contributed to the stain. Not even counting into fact the stain could purely be Kathleen's. And keep in mind, all this evidence that he's testifying to is under oath. He also testified that the hairs collected at the incident were microscopically similar. I'm doing air quotes, if you can't tell. Microscopically similar, which was later proven false. And the prosecutor at the time, in his closing argument, said that they were a match. Although at this time, the skin, this is pre-DNA, there's no way to determine whether they are a match or not without DNA. So that was a lie. So some of the inconsistencies with the trial. Clean shaven is who she identified. He had a full-blown mustache. I envision one of those 70s mustaches. That's just not coming up overnight. She also testified that she attacked the attacker, leaving lots of scratches all over him, whereas Mr. Dotson had no injuries. Mr. Dotson had an alibi at the time by three of his friends who testified that they were drinking and out partying that night. And also, the evidence collected from the vaginal swab and the underwear had different sperm amounts, which may seem weird, but apparently sperm is metabolized internally. So that concluded, based on the different amounts, that the attack couldn't have happened that night. The rape wouldn't have happened just a few hours before, like she said it had. It had to have been before that. Despite all of this, he was found guilty, Mr. Dotson. He was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison. A few years later, Kathleen moved to New Hampshire. She married her high school classmate, and she became overwhelmed with grief and mourning and regret of the secret that she had kept. And she confided in her pastor the truth about what had happened. 
Her pastor connected her with an attorney who reached out to the prosecuting office. Who, what, do you, what do you think happened with the prosecuting office? If you take a wild guess. They welcomed review of the case. Wouldn't that be nice? No, they were unresponsive and unwilling to revisit the case. So you know what this attorney did? He went to the media. He went to Jim Gibbons with WLS-TV, an ABC affiliate in Chicago, and they broke the story the next day. The story broke March 22nd, 1985. The following day, it was all over all the newspapers. And due to the public outrage, Judge Samuels released Dotson on April 4th, 1985 with a $100,000 bond pending a hearing. You think that's all good news, right? It is good news. Well, at the hearing, the prosecution called another alibi witness that had not been used in the original trial. And due to some unfortunate circumstances, the testimony was different than the first one. It had nothing to do with Mr. Dotson. It had to do with who was driving the car that night that they were out going to parties and drinking. The original witnesses testified it was them when, in fact, it was this individual. And the original witnesses testified that they lied because this original individual, who is not Mr. Dotson, some independent person, had a suspended driver's license and they didn't want him to get in trouble. Based on the inconsistencies and the changed stories that night, the judge ruled that the evidence from the trial was stronger than the recantation of the victim and ordered Mr. Dotson back to prison just a week after. Unfortunately for Mr. Dotson, public opinion had been on his side up until that point. But the next day, the worst salmonella outbreak in the history happened, affecting 15,000 people within the Chicago area and overcame a lot of the news. Mr. Dotson was able to get a clemency hearing in front of the Prisoner Review Board, the parole board. They denied him the clemency, stating that he had a fair trial, but commuted his sentence to time served and was released on parole. Now, my history with parole, that may seem like a positive thing, However, any violation of his parole, he could be sent back. He could be sent back for anything. He could be sent back for non-payment of fines. He could be sent back for missing a phone call, which he was at one point. Mr. Dotson, unfortunately, did not adjust well to life outside of prison. He very quickly became an alcoholic, often days most of the time only consuming alcohol to get through the day. He said he was unable to find work and signed lots of book deals and movie deals for cash in order to continue his lifestyle. But you know what? Kathleen, the original victim, she ended up giving him $17,500 that year that she had received from a cash advance from a book that she had planned on writing. Not that that makes up for anything, but I think that's a nice gesture. Mr. Dotson, struggling with the addiction that he was, unfortunately blew through that money in just a few months. The next several years, he was in and out of prison for parole violations, minor incidents, all stemming around his addiction issues. January 7th, 1988, the magic day when DNA testing became available. His attorney petitioned the court to do this DNA testing. The judge allowed it. It was RFLP DNA testing, one of the earlier types. Unfortunately, they were unable to return results because the sample that was provided was too degraded. But luckily, later that year, further developments happened, and they now have something called PCR DNA testing, which specifically deals with degraded samples. They sent it off, and wouldn't you know it, it completed 
and they were able to get results. Mr. Dotson was eliminated as a person providing the stain and Kathleen's boyfriend at the time was identified as the individual that had provided the stain. You'd think all good. He's out and released, right? Yeah, immediately. No, he was committed to a treatment center for drug and alcohol abuse. His attorney petitioned the judge who stated he wasn't going to do anything with his case until he got a recommendation from the prison review board. Nine months later, nothing from the prisoner review board. He's still sitting in prison for it. So guess what his attorney did like he did before? He released a media statement. And wouldn't you know it, that just spurred everybody into action. And he was released. And on August 14th, a hearing was set. The prosecution, despite the victim recanting the story, and despite DNA evidence proving that he was not the one providing the stain, was still going to pursue prosecution. They just do not know when to give it up. Of course, August 14th came around and they changed their tune. They decided they were going to drop all charges. And this 12-year ordeal ended for Mr. Dotson. Now, one thing kind of remained between everybody about how a 16-year-old girl was able to concoct a story that fooled medical professionals, that fooled police officers, that fooled judges, that convinced everybody this happened. She read it in a book. This whole rape scene was out of a book that she read, and she just changed the events to match hers. And that is the very unfortunate tale of Mr. Dotson, the first United States DNA exoneree. That's quite a story. Isn't it? And it goes a lot more. I encourage anybody to go and do some more research. Like I say, we're not experts, but I definitely encourage you to be. We had mentioned the Innocence Project. They have a wonderful website full of all sorts of news articles and releases, information about every single exoneree that there's been. Same thing with the Midwest Innocence Project. Please go out and learn more. There's so much more to this story that's so compelling. I just, I could honestly probably sit here and talk for hours and nobody wants that. No, Beth, thank, thank you for that. Uh, Beth's reference to uh, Jimmy Gardner, he was the subject of our first episode. Um, and there were a lot of similarities uh, between Mr. Dodson and Jimmy Gardner's case. So uh, that's it for this uh, wrongful conviction day uh, episode. Um, we're going to we've got a very special guest lined up for our next episode. He's a local exoneree. He will be here to tell his story. And it's a in very his own words. Yes. In, in his, person. Yes. <laughs> we're very very fortunate yeah we're looking forward to that i hope you are too um yeah thanks for listening that's it for today thank you